3: Welcome to the program. I almost said welcome back and then I realized it was me who was gone and not you, but it is good to be back. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life or at church, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, if you are driving in your car, I want to remind you that the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I know some of you have sent us uh, messages Uh, Praying for us on our vacation We had a really good time Uh, Paula will be here on Thursday I'm sure that she'll have some things to talk about Regarding our vacation But it was just nice to get away and get some rest I want to especially thank Pastor Ken uh, For standing in for me For that first week And then last week we subjected all of you to To repeat broadcasts But now we are back and live It was really, really good to be back uh, At church on Sunday i uh, it was um I did a message just not from normal through the Bible teaching, just kind of some stuff that God's put on my heart, a message that I believed He had for our church, and uh, now we get back into the regular routine, which is a really good thing for me, a regular routine. Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, where we will continue in mark chapter ten i'll be teaching tomorrow night out of first kings chapter twenty two we're going to end the book of First Kings, and then uh, we'll go right into Second Kings in the old uh Hebrew Bibles that was just one book, um, so we're just going to continue doing that. Uh, and on Fridays, we are starting a brand new book i 'm going to be teaching in first Thessalonians, and then when that's done we're going to go all through Second Thessalonians as well. Well, let me get to some questions that have been sent while we await your phone calls. Here is the first one. It is from our mobile app, and this one is from Bill. He says, "How do you minister to someone who is transgender?" Um, Bill, a couple of things. I think I think we need to keep the basic things the basic things. Somebody who is not saved, doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle they're living, it doesn't matter what personal choices they've made, um, the only way to minister to them is with the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins because God loved you. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. That, Bill, is the only way. It's the gospel that opens heart. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. And I think sometimes when we approach somebody who's living a gay lifestyle or a transgender lifestyle um, or any alternative lifestyle, um, our, our tendency is to talk about the sin. And, you know, they know. Uh, instinctively, they know that what they're doing is wrong. Their hearts may be hard and they may be committed to an ungodly lifestyle. But But the thing is, only the gospel can penetrate that. And we want to fight the issue or we want to fight the problem instead of understanding that the problem is sin and the problem is hard hearts. And remember that only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit, can penetrate even the hardest of hearts. So... Uh, I I don't think that you necessarily have to minister on the basis of them being transgender. Uh, I think if they ask you questions, obviously, you've got to be prepared to to answer those questions. But it's not something that we do um, uh, just assuming, uh, you know, we we have a tendency to make it sound like that sin is just uh, the worst of all sins. Just all sin separates us from God. Bill, like that person is a sinner. You were a sinner before you received Jesus Christ, and you were set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what we need to do. Now, obviously, in this culture, day and age that we live in, uh, it's not possible any longer to uh, avoid these things, and people are going to talk. People are going to argue. They're going to insist on their rights. But we keep answering with the gospel. God loves you. He has a plan for you. He proved his love for you already by dying for your sins and all you need to do is repent of your sins ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and then he'll do the rest I think too often Bill we try to clean the fish before we catch him and that's really not a biblical position at all so if they want to bring it up I'll be happy to talk with them about it, why it's wrong Um, but but the issue is sin, not that particular sin. The issue is sin. So, Bill, I hope that helps you. Uh, I want to make it really, really clear that that uh, th- this attack on our identity uh, is as satanic as it can be. And he has, the devil does, a lock on these people's minds and hearts. Uh, it's also true in Romans chapter 1 where we, we read about... Uh, God giving people over for sexual immorality and in particular uh, questions about sexuality, uh, gay lifestyles, those kind of things. God simply gives people over. If we, want, if we insist on doing what we want to do, then that's exactly, um, God will say, okay, my hands are off. And Bill, that's when we're in a dangerous place. So um, we want people to know there's an urgency. We don't know when we cross that line, that point of no return. But God does. And when God's put somebody who is living a transgender lifestyle into your life, uh, that person needs to hear um, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about their sin. One final thought. The one thing I would not do, Bill, is um, cave into to uh, calling somebody who is biologically male by female pronouns uh, or, or uh, male by... Uh, biology female by male pronouns i I simply wouldn't do that um that would that that's lying and we want to tell them the truth right is right and wrong is wrong and we've got to stay on top of that bill thank you very very much for that here is we got jimmy on line one from san antonio jimmy thanks for calling you're on the air Good to
4: hear, you hear from me? you. I can hear you. Okay, I was reading the scripture in Matthew chapter 12, 43, 45. And I was, I was, because I have a friend of mine that he says he goes out and casts out demons. And and he says, I, I cast out so many demons. And I said, well, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit who cast out demons. And, he, and, I said, and those demons have to go somewhere. So I looked it up in the scripture, and it says it goes into the wilderness, and then, and then, uh, and then it can come back and bring seven more demons with them. What does that mm-hmm. mean?
3: Well, um, Jimmy, you know, I'm, I'm always really skeptical when somebody comes and says, oh, yeah, I cast out demons all the time. Uh, I, have, I have cast out demons, and, and I have encountered demons, and it is one of the, the most difficult and ugly experiences that any Christian is going to go through. And so somebody who is just casually explaining, oh, yeah, I do this all the time, uh, they really have not encountered demons at all. And, and I think we need to, to understand that. Now, what Jesus is saying um, about the demons, and, and, and there's so much that we don't understand about demons. Uh, we don't understand why they don't like to be disembodied. Um, uh, but it is clear that they don't want to be disembodied. They don't want to be out in the in the arid places, spiritually speaking. Uh, they want something to possess. That's why Jesus was asked by the the, the legion of demons in the man that we know is Legion uh, if they could go into the pigs. So again, we don't know why it's that way. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 12 is that when there is a demon. Uh, in in somebody, when somebody is demon-possessed, um, um, they can be ordered out. The demon can be ordered out by the authority of Jesus Christ. But unless you replace that, that missing demon with the Spirit of God, then that demon is going to return to its home. And, and Jesus said the last state of that person will be worse than it was at the beginning. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, is a good example of this. Um, if, if the demons come back and find out that the person has not accepted Jesus Christ, then what Jesus says is it, uh, it uh, goes and takes seven other spirits, even more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And then, of course, things get worse. Now, what that means is that when we're casting out demons, Jimmy, we've got to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I've found, and uh, I simply, it, it's my practice, and, and it doesn't mean that I'm doing it right w- or somebody else is doing it wrong, but my practice is uh, I'm going to talk to the person, the host of the demon, about whether or not they're interested in receiving Jesus Christ. Um, I've always found in situations like this that that uh, that God gives me a way in to talk to the person, which means I can bypass the demon. And if they're not interested at all in giving their life to Jesus Christ, then I'm not going to cast a demon out because I don't want to make things worse for them. But um, if, they're, if they're willing to do that, then the demon is going to go, and they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and everything is going to be okay. But again, there's so much that we don't know, Jimmy, about why things are um, the, the way they are in the demonic world. Um, we just, we're just told that that's what it is. So I hope that makes sense to you, Jimmy it's the best we can do because we're guessing a lot when it comes to, to demons and things like that. Thanks for the question uh, We had a gentleman who called the stu- the studio regarding the asteroid um, he said there was an actual asteroid surrounding the earth um, there is an asteroid I saw only a headline so I have no information on this uh, the first question is, is is this person on the air? No. Okay. He was on the air, called in, uh, saying that TV minister said he had a dream. An asteroid is going to hit Earth. Is there any validity to this? The answer is no. Uh, There there is an asteroid. I saw the headline. It says, on collision course with Earth. Earth, But a collision course with Earth could be like uh, a thousand miles away or something. Um, So, no, there's no validity. And when you're watching these kind of false prophets on television, nothing that they say is relevant. So, uh, just ignore it completely. I want everybody to understand something. God is the one in control of all these things. We know the earth is going to be destroyed eventually. But as Christians, we won't be here when that happens, we'll be in heaven with Jesus. It will come after the great tribulation and then the world so polluted by sin and death that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But that's not till after the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So so God is the one in control of these things. And I think it's really important that we understand that and our confidence is in God. And that's why he's given us his word, so that we're not going to find ourselves in situations where we're we're we're, we're deceived by false teachers uh, on a television or a radio ministry. So um, I have a lot of weird dreams, caller, uh, but but you know most of them aren't from God. In fact, very few are from the Lord. If he wants to talk to me, um, he'll make sure I understand that. But this is just the kind of of uh, sensational stuff that false teachers and, and these uh, a lot of TV preachers are famous for. So is there an asteroid out there? The answer is yes. Um, but is it going to hit the earth? The answer is no. Uh, at least not until the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is, is over. And, of course, we will all be with Jesus at that time. So it's okay. I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the... For the question here is a question from our email inbox. This one came from David. He asked, "Do you do the Lord's Supper weekly? And after every Sunday sermon, do you all offer salvation by fully emerged baptism?" Um, David, two two different questions. No, we do not do the Lord's Supper uh, weekly. We do it on the first Sunday of every month. There is no instruction at all uh, in the Bible about how often we're supposed to do it. Uh, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the NIV says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. So there isn't any direction about how often we're supposed to do it. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing it every week. Um, um, our reasoning for... Uh, doing it once a month is fairly straightforward. Uh, we simply don't want people to do it um, mechanically. We want it to mean something. And I think anything that you do every week becomes uh, simply another religious practice. Uh, so we we do it. The Lord's Supper is very important to us here. And so we do it uh, on the first Sunday of every month. Um, and we will continue doing it that way. Uh, With regard to your other question, and I kind of think I see an agenda here, David. Uh, And after every Sunday sermon, do you all offer salvation by fully emerged baptism? No, because baptism doesn't save you. I don't know if you have a Church of Christ background. I don't know where you're coming from. Uh, I give an invitation to receive Jesus Christ every time I'm preaching the Bible. Every single time, whether it's Sundays, Wednesdays, or Fridays, um, I'm. I always give an invitation. Uh, we give sinners an opportunity of their sins forgiven. I, I encourage them to. I'd love you to meet my Jesus. He's crazy about you, and he wants to to save you from your sins and take you to heaven. But you've got to surrender your heart first. And baptism doesn't save. I know we're in South Texas and there are some churches that think baptism saves, but that's a misunderstanding of the scriptures. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved when we believe and when we receive. And the idea that baptism somehow saves people uh, is a works-oriented gospel that really isn't the gospel at all. Now, I'm not suggesting that people who believe in baptismal regeneration are not saved. You can be wrong doctrinally and still be a part of the body of Jesus Christ. But you're missing the whole point. Baptism is um, important. Jesus said to do it. Paul wrote about it, said to do it. It was practiced in the book of Acts. Baptism matters. It's a public declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a symbolic of the death of the old you and then when you come up out of the water, it is the the uh symbolic of the the the, the born again um moment when we're we're born again into Christ Jesus and we're going to live a new life. So it's very very important. In fact, we are having uh in August, early August, we're having a church baptism David uh where we like to make it a memorable event so people can come out. And I'll be baptizing people for uh, a lot, uh, a long time on that particular day. Uh, we will, we do baptisms during the rest of the year. It's not just a one-day-a-year thing. If somebody wants to get baptized, of course we'll do it. Uh, but we do not have a baptismal here. And even if we did, it wouldn't be um, as though we're offering salvation. Uh, the Holy Spirit offers salvation. And when people respond— mm-hmm. And when people come forward at an invitation, that is a public. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. So that's a public confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then baptism is something that we do uh, as a result of being saved. We don't get saved because we're baptized. We get baptized because we're saved. And I hope, David, that makes sense to you. That's what the Bible teaches. And I know what the book of Acts says. But if you read it carefully, look at the language, you'll understand what it's communicating. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. It says, hi, I'm very thankful for this program with Pastor Ron and Pastor Ken. My question is the War of Armageddon. Is it during the tribulation? And the Battle of Gog and Magog is that during the Tribulation or after the millennial reign of Jesus. Um, Once Jesus comes, Anonymous, uh, there will be no more wars. There will be no more evil. Jesus will rule with an iron fist. And so a loving iron fist, but an iron fist nonetheless. And so there will be absolutely no uh, rebellion that that is permitted in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The, 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 The Battle of Megiddo, what we call Armageddon, uh, will be at the end of the Great Tribulation. In Revelation chapter 19, you can read about it. It's when Jesus comes back um, with us, by the way, we'll be with him. He does all the fighting, but we'll be with him. And he destroys his enemies with the word. Uh, In the Valley of Megiddo, it's the most natural battlefield on the face of the earth. Uh, It's interesting to read um, more modern generals marveling at at the amphitheater for a battle that that uh, Megiddo represents, and when Jesus comes back, um, uh, the, the armies from the east, the two hundred million men army from the east, and the armies of the forces uh, that we of the men that we call the Antichrist will be gathered there for what is the final war on earth. Will Jesus actually interrupts that war? They're going to fight each other. Um, at least that's why they're there and Jesus is going to interrupt that war and he will destroy with the word. The same word that created all things is going to destroy those who have rebelled against him. And that's when, uh, that's the event that will initiate Jesus's 1,000 year reign of Christ on earth. So that's at the very end. Now the battle of Gog and Magog is, is really interesting and it's hard Uh, to be dogmatic about when that's going to be. Now, I have a very strong opinion, and I'll share that with you, Anonymous. However, I want you to understand, there are a lot of people who disagree with me, and they know as much or more as I do, so uh, we can't really be sure. Um, I believe that Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, I believe that that battle is going to occur um, right at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We're going to be raptured, And then you're going to see those enemy forces um, out of the north uh, coming against Israel. And God is going to intervene with a supernatural uh, destruction of those enemies. Um, um, I believe that's going to happen um, right after the rapture of the church as the Great Tribulation begins. I think that's one of the events that is going to catapult the man that we call the Antichrist into a position of authority. So we're dealing with the rapture, then this battle of Gog and Magog, I think he'll put it down. God will put it down, but then he'll take credit for it, of course, because that's what the devil does, and uh, and that's going to happen. There are people, however, anonymous, who believe that Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 is going to happen at some point just before the rapture of the church. I don't agree. I don't see any evidence for it, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're not Right. So uh, all we can do, I can be very sure of of Megiddo or what we call Armageddon, um, but uh, Gog and Magog is a little less certain in terms of the information that we're given. Wonderful question. Thank you very, very much. You know, one of the things that we've been uh, dealing with, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to take another question before this half of the program is over. But one of the things that we've been dealing with a lot, we just finished the Book of Revelation before we went on vacation, and I'm starting in First and Second Thessalonians this coming Friday. And there's there's a bunch there about the end times, about the the great tribulation, about the rapture of the church, and those kind of things. And I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled whenever anyone is is uh, asking questions about the end times we need to be wise about the things that are coming and the bible tells us so we don't have to be caught off guard at all jesus is coming he's coming soon you know i told the church on sunday uh our first sunday back after vacation that uh, california was good for me it's good for me because california is a crazy place I, i'm a native californian raised there my whole life And yet you go back there and you just see how hard-hearted people are. And you see how messed up things are. Uh, The homeless population is growing increasingly um, um, mentally ill there. Um, Each year we see worse and worse um, cases of people who are out on the streets. Uh, We see sin uh, open and rampant running in public. It's just uh, unbelievable the things that are going on. All of that to say uh, that that Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready for that. So these are important things to study. We need to know uh, our eschatology. A lot of good information out there. What we have to do is live our lives every day committed and submitted to the lordship of jesus christ just be with jesus and that's the only way i know to be ready for that moment when he comes paul and i we were walking on the beach and then we walked again this morning and all i could think about was today could be that day lord he could be coming hey we've got 30 minutes left in the program Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero kslr we'll be back in two minutes
1: To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free 630 KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the program. We've got thirty minutes left on my first day back. I'm not too rusty, so I hope I'm making sense. Here's a question from our email inbox, and this is actually it's anonymous. Uh, Pastor Ken received this email and talked about it on Wednesday. Uh, But I was asked personally to answer it as well. Um, Here's the situation. A father came to Christ later in life. Uh, His sons were 17, 10, and 6. Now five years later, the father is living for Christ and the oldest two sons don't respect their dad from all the heartaches and bad examples uh, the father caused by not coming home some nights and also doing drugs and drinking alcohol, alcohol, etc. What should the father do to try and gain their trust back, uh, the children don't feel loved by him. Also, when the father tries to discipline them, it causes more chaos because the kids have anger towards him, and don't feel that he's lovingly disciplining them because he yells at them, and talks down to them. I'm the mother, and I'm guilty for always arguing with my husband in front of the kids, but I've always been there for them and raised them in church and did not do or show them bad examples. Please help. We need advice. There's so much here, anonymous and. Uh I, I pray that you'll take my counsel wisely. I'm uh I'm I'm your I'm your husband. Now I only had two sons, but uh I'm him. I was the jerk husband and the jerk dad. Um my sons were eighteen and sixteen when I came to faith in Christ, and I had uh so much uh to repent of and um uh, I wouldn't have been shocked if my children never Talk to me again now. God has has fixed all that, and I'm hopeful that He'll do it uh, in your case as well. Um, a couple of things that jumped out at me first, and this is my counsel to the to the your husband to the father in this case. Um, when discipline is necessary, um, as a Christian, um, he can't be yelling at them. Um, you know, I, I've I'm, and I'm not the, the example here, but but I haven't raised my voice in 31 years. Now, Paula's at home. Paula, if, if that's not honest, then you can correct me on Thursday. But 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 I can't remember raising my voice when I was speaking to the kids. Uh, I came to them and spoke with them and told them that, that uh, everything Dad did was wrong. Uh, I, I was wrong. Um, everything I tried to teach them was wrong. And and I challenged them. I said, said I don't expect you to believe me, uh, but, but but I'm going to ask you to watch me. And my life changed so radically that they couldn't deny it. Now, my sons were angry with me. And, and there were, were times they didn't want to talk to me. When Paul and I left California to come to San Antonio, they would call and talk to their mom, but they didn't want to talk to me. But believe me, they were watching. And they saw the complete transformation of my life. Here's our problem. I think, you know, we've got a past, and then we say now we're Christians, and then we act the same way that we did before. We yell at them and, and, and don't demonstrate, at least demonstrate love that they benefit from. Um, to them, the enemy's right there, and they're just thinking that, um, you know, he's not any different. He's the same as he was before. Uh, all he can do is apologize to them, but then he has to set an example for, of godliness. Now, discipline is necessary. It's a father's job. But discipline shouldn't be confrontational. should never be done in anger. A voice should never be raised. And we don't argue. That's not what Christians do. We love them, and we sit down and we talk with them. And then if discipline is necessary, then we carry it out. But they need to see with their own eyes and their own hearts, that that dad is different. Now, if these kids, you say that you stand up for them, you've always stood up for them, they need to see that you respond differently as well. And you and your husband have got to be on the same page. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? They need to see that you and your husband, both of you now serving Christ, um, that that relationship is primary that that relationship is more important to you than the relationship you have with your kids. So they've got to be convinced that mom and dad are together in this. That means you've got to do your part and you can't take your children's side against your husband, not ever. So you arguing with your husband is setting a bad example. And then finally, and especially for the 17-year-old and maybe the 10-year-old, I don't know uh, your kids, so I, I can't make a judgment, but but if they've been raised in church, they have to be told to respond in a godly way. And the first thing that they need to be told to do is to forgive their father. Yeah, he was a jerk for a lot of those years, and yes, he did a lot of terrible things, but now in Christ, he's a new person And just as God has forgiven you, especially the 17-year-old, as God has forgiven you, God has forgiven him, everybody starts with a clean slate. This family needs to come together in Christ. I would suggest wherever your church is, get some family counseling. Talk about those things. At one point, you've got to be able to say, um, he's different. So we have to be different. And holding on to unforgiveness is preventing them from enjoying the work that God wants to do in and through their lives. You know, uh, Anonymous Paula uh, didn't believe my conversion was real for one year. I didn't get angry. I didn't get frustrated with her. I deserved all of the distrust. It was my fault. But I knew God would show her. And at one point, and, and when I say a year, it was almost literally a year from the day I got saved. And she was just waiting to get hurt again. waiting. You know, she hated being vulnerable again. And the Lord spoke to her heart and said, Just look what I've done. I answered your prayers. How much more time are you going to waste? And God did that work in Paula, And we've been walking together ever since. And that's the same thing that will happen in your family. But you've got to be committed to Jesus Christ, each of you individually and as a family unit. I would also suggest that the family sits down with the husband taking the lead and reading the Bible together. Don't give your kids an option in this. It's not their choice. This is what the family is going to do. And you're in the Word together. You're praying together. And God will use those things to change hearts supernaturally. God can do this. You can't. He can't. The kids can't, but God can and will. It's what he wants to do. So I hope that makes sense to you. Please, wherever your church is, please, please, please go ask for family counseling and uh, let the Lord deal with this situation. Let's go to line one. My friend Ruben Insigne. Reuben, I have missed you while I was gone. How are you doing?
4: I was just going to tell you the same thing. I missed you. <laughs> you don't know what you have until it's gone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, Jesus made us come back, so we're here.
4: We, You're here, yeah. and We're here, yeah. Thank God. Uh, Pastor Ron, uh, I just wanted to know if I could read a couple of scriptures and then ask you one quick question. Okay. Uh, Psalm, the 28th chapter, 1 through 4. It says, wait, to you okay. I call—oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Are you there? I'm sorry, the 27th okay. this, the 27th chapter, I'm sorry. Okay. My finger hit there. I'm sorry. Okay. Psalm, the 28th chapter. Lord, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they both stumble and fall. So when an army besieges me, my heart will not fear. Will war break out against me? Even then will I be confident. Hallelujah. Hmm. And this is the one I, I have a question about. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. This is like a daily prayer that I pray. And then when anxiety tries to creep up on me, and I read this over and over and over again until it just goes away. Uh, but on in chapter 4, where it says... Uh, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Uh, of course, he's talking uh, while he's living on Earth, or is he talking about while he's after he's dead?
3: Yeah, no, he he's talking about here now, Reuben. One of the things you have to remember here: the, the circumstances around these psalms are really, really important. Um, David was. Uh, running from King Saul uh, for ten years, King Saul was trying to kill him and chasing him all over the country. David was hiding in caves, and um, David would would. This is like a morning devotion for David. Um, you know those times when you're afraid and 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 things are going really, really painfully. You think, well, well, but but Jesus, you're here. I know you're you're my light, and my salvation. That kind of thing. Uh, so, this is a devotion. When he gets to verse four, um, he's, sort of, he's sort of jumping to the end, and he's saying, uh, The one thing that I ask, the one thing that I seek, is I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is simply David. Psalm 84 is another one just like this, Reuben. Um, some, um, these Psalms, David's just saying, I want to, and, and I'm going to put it in, in our cultural reference form. Um, David's just saying, I want to be in church. I want to be in church. I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to be able to offer sacrifices for my sins. Now, remember, Jews in, in David's time didn't have the, the concept of, of Christ in us, hope of glory. The Holy Spirit, of course, hadn't been given. Uh, they didn't have the concept of, of, of heaven being in the presence of the Lord. So so, so David's understanding here is simply uh, he's he's reflecting on what he's missing I want to be in church. I want to be in your temple. I want to offer my sacrifices. I want to worship you, O God. And and of course, he couldn't do that from the caves because King Saul was looking to kill him. So uh, this was just him longing. You know, a great frame of reference for this, Reuben, would be a lot of people who couldn't go to church during COVID. There were so many people who wanted to go to church and they kept saying oh lord I want to be back in fellowship I want to be. but 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 for a lot of people they couldn't be and when the doors opened up those prayers were answered and they were able to come back into the church and and I had people, so many people, Reuben, who would come up to me and say, "Oh, Pastor Ron, it feels so good to be back. I missed it so much." And he just wanted to be with God. He wanted to be with the people of God, and he wanted to be in the house of the God, of God. And as he was running away from King Saul, those things weren't possible. So he's remembering the goodness of God. He's remembering that he doesn't need to be afraid. That God has made him great promises, but. I still miss you, Lord. I want to be in your house. Psalm 84 is actually even better for that. That makes sense to you?
4: Yes, sir. Thank you.
3: Okay, God bless you, Reuben. Good to hear from you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We got Mike on line two from San Antonio. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hello, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me
3: okay? I can hear you great, Mike.
2: Hey, welcome back! Uh, missed you while you were gone. Glad you got a break. <laughs>
3: hey, Thank
2: you. My, my scripture reference is First uh, John one, eight, nine, and ten. And then, because I, I was studying the book today, and then I'm just I have a question about those three verses as they contrast. Well, I don't know if they contrast with First John three, four, five, and six. Now I could read them on the air, or you can just address it. Whatever you want to do. Okay.
3: Uh, the The second verses you said are three, four, and five, or four, five, and six. Six.
2: Uh, four, five, and six. Okay. Uh, that's First John 3, 4, 5, 6, and First John one, eight, nine, ten. And of course, I think you know the the word so well that it says, "If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves." Yes. But in the second reference, it talks about. If we abide in him, there is no sin in us. So I know there's probably a simple explanation.
3: Yeah, there, there is. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, two things. First, John, and, and a lot of people get twisted reading this because they don't realize um, the, the purpose of John writing. His purposes is so that we may have fellowship with God, and then through that fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. And what John is talking about throughout this, and this book is, can be tedious at times because he keeps repeating himself over and over and over. That's how important these truths are, Mike. So um, um, in chapter one, he's simply saying that if we claim to be without sin, we're lying. It's that simple. Um, you know, there are people who say even now that sinless perfection is possible. I've even known some people who claim to be perfect by now. And, and you know, they're just not being honest. It's not the truth. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. That's why the next verse is so important. Because when we sin, we our fellowship with God is broken. We don't lose our salvation. That's not what John's talking about. Our fellowship with God is broken. And so he says in chapter uh, 1, verse 9, here's the answer. If we confess our sins, now to confess our sins doesn't just mean to say it. It means to agree with God that what we're doing is sin. If we confess our sins, agree with God, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that fixes any broken fellowship that we have with the Lord. So we sin because we're in these flesh and blood bodies. That's what we do. And and God has made a provision so that that sin can be cleansed, and the 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 uh, uh, it's in the present tense when it talks about purifying us from all unrighteousness. It's a continual purification, simply by uh, confessing, agreeing with God, uh, and then having our fellowship restored. So that's all that's involved in in chapter one. In chapter three. I've got it here. It says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. This is verse 4, and I'll just read them. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away your sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. There's the key, Mike. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So here's what John is saying there. He's addressing those people that are living a willful lifestyle of continuing sin who claim to be Christians. Now, all we have to do is look around the churches uh, that that we go to, and you can see a whole bunch of people who are doing all kinds of sinful things uh, willfully, and yet they're claiming to be God. And John is simply saying that if that's you, if that describes you, then you're kidding yourself. The Apostle Paul says pretty much the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In mean, Galatians chapter 5, um, when he talks about people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know a lot of people who live in willful sin who say, No, I'm fine. God, God's god got me. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But they're living in willful sin. So in chapter 3, that's what he's talking about. Now, in um, 1 John, there was something going on behind the scenes. Uh, the Gnostics, which was, I think, the the first real doctrinal cult... Uh, The Gnostics didn't believe that anything flesh could have anything to do with God. In fact, the Gnostics believed that uh, Jesus was God, but they didn't believe that he appeared in the flesh. Um, It wasn't long after Jesus was gone. People saying, no, no, the flesh and the spirit have nothing to do in common. So Jesus couldn't have appeared in the flesh because the flesh is sinful. And and they decided that it was okay to sin, whatever we did in our flesh was okay because God didn't care about the things of the flesh. And to to come to that conclusion, they had to agree that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh; that he only appeared to or was an apparition uh, of of being in the flesh. And that that heresy began with with it with with well, he's not really he's God, but he's not really human. Isn't it interesting that some two thousand years later? Uh, the heresy is just the opposite. Everybody agrees now, the evidence is so overwhelming that Jesus was a real human, but today the heresy is that he wasn't God. So it's just the opposite as it was there. And so what John is trying to do is let them understand that um, um, Jesus was human, he was in the flesh, and if you continue to cater to your flesh, the truth is you really haven't met him at all. You can know about him and not really know him. Jesus said on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, uh, and I will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you doer of iniquity, or you sinner. And so that's what John is addressing in these chapters. And you've got to be really, really careful. There's a great, great commentary, Mike, on on 1 John uh, by G. Campbell Morgan. I think it's the best one I've ever read. And I absolutely love it. You can get it. And, and anything you get by G. Campbell Morgan is really good. But but I think that was would be a really, really outstanding commentary for you to get your, your hands on. So that's what he's talking about. And by the way, when John says in 1 John chapter 4... Uh, verse 1, he says, Brothers, test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. And he says, Here's the test. Any spirit that says Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh is Antichrist. So that's the specific uh, heresy that he was dealing with. Great question, Mike. Thank you very, very much. 3409585, here is a question from our email inbox from Scott. He said, my question about the term saint and how the Roman Catholic Church addresses and, and or identifies them is a bit puzzling to me. How it's determined what makes a saint or how a saint should be. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, in Roman Catholicism and certain other Christian faith traditions, a saint is a holy person who's known for his or her heroic sanctity and who is thought to be in heaven. Uh, that This tradition of naming saints was established in the Thinster's of Pope John. Uh, the 25th, or the 15th rather, I'm sorry. My point is that there's no mention of saints in I'm sorry, my point is that there's mentions of saints in Deuteronomy, Job, Psalm, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, all Old Testament references um, uh, and, and many mentions in New Testament like Romans, uh, verse 1 to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Um. I think the question, I'll have to read the rest of the question because we're running out of time, Scott. But, but the, the idea of saints. The Roman Catholic uh, understanding of sainthood uh, is unbiblical. Um, it, it's really, really poor doctrine. Saints are not super saints. They're not superheroes. They're not people who've done miracles, who've been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that is man-made tradition, and it's nonsense. The New Testament makes it very clear that the saints are those who are born-again believers. You know, Scott, I love the idea of hearing Jesus say, St. Ron. I like that. Now, I don't think I'm a saint, but he does. And so when, like in Rome, he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, the same thing happens with the Philippians, the same thing happens in Ephesians and Colossians. Um, uh, Paul called to be saints. We're saints if we're born again. Set apart by God. Sanctified, that's what the word means. And um, and, and so the reference to saints, the biblical reference to saints in the New Testament is very simply uh, those who are born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all saints. Now, the the other thing I want to point out is when you talk in the Old Testament, uh, the mention of saints in Deuteronomy and Job, Psalms, Daniel, Hosea, and Zechariah, and Isaiah as well. Uh, those saints refer only to the people of God, Israel. Daniel, in his prophecies, uh, he he mentions in chapter 9 uh, the attack on the saints. Well, Daniel knew nothing about the church. Neither did um, um, David or Daniel, uh, Hosea, Zechariah, um, Moses. They knew nothing of the, of the church, the saints. So their reference to saints are the separated, the called out by God, that they would understand saints as being those who are called by God, God's people, Israel. That doesn't mean that they were saved. It doesn't mean it just means that they were set apart by God to represent Him, and so that's the only source of confusion um, when when Daniel talks about the saints uh, in the end times. Uh, he's talking about the persecution against the Jews, God's people, at the hands of the Antichrist. So, um, uh, Scott, that's that's all that's referred to here. But let me be clear uh, as we run out of time here today. Um, we are all saints if, in fact, we're born again. And saints are not a super special classification people that we should pray to or venerate or anything else that simply misses the point biblically. Now, the Catholic tradition, um, people hold on to that. But it is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Thank you very much, Scott. Great question. Hey, well, thanks for tuning in today. It was been, it's been great to be back. Uh, I've got some questions I didn't get to today, so we'll get to them tomorrow. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on 6.30 a.m. We'll see you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4